I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. My special guest today is my colleague and friend, Dr. Phil Zuckerman. He is a professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and he's also affiliated faculty with Claremont Graduate University. If you are unfamiliar with his tremendous scholarship, it's time to catch up. He's the author of numerous books, including The Oxford Companion to Secularism and Society Without God. Uh, we go back a good number of years. I think our first encounter revolved around the book you were working on dealing with W.E.B. Du Bois. I think for both of us, that was fairly early in our careers. I'm going to label it this way. I met you during my pre-baldness years. <laughs> okay. We worked together a good number of years in the post-baldness era. Well said. Well said. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. You know, I'm just keeping it real. Good memory. That's right. That's right. It's so true. Well, thanks for that introduction. And, you know, you, you're just such a bright, shining star out there in, in, this, in the cosmos. Oh, thanks so much. Folks come into the Academy for a variety of reasons, but what led you to the Academy? Why are you doing what you do? Well, I was trying to find a cure for my baldness, to be honest. <laughs> I thought you might have some tips. No. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I grew up in LA near Santa Monica. The film business was everywhere. Everybody was in the film business. I actually was very into theater and acting and drama. I was always involved in the school plays and the school musicals. I loved to perform, but <laughs> I also liked to debate and discuss. And I was always very interested in current events. I read the news constantly. So it was this weird mix because I, on the one hand, I hung out with thespians who were not always interested or, you know, in politics. Or, <laughs> but I always had a book with me. And even when I was a young man, I, I first went to junior college out of high school because I was trying to pursue acting. And I stayed in LA and my folks said, well, if you want to live at home, you have to still be in school full time or you have to get out and support yourself. So I went to junior college, great school, Santa Monica City College, and was trying pursuing acting. But I, I remember it struck me, I used to go to the casting calls and I'd be the only guy with a book in the casting room. And this was before, <laughs> you know, iPhones, nobody had iPhones. So these guys, we'd all be sitting on the casting, you know, in the casting lounges and they'd all be like, what do you, they thought I was weird for reading. And so I always had that interest. And, um, and I think after a couple years of realizing that I could not there was no way I was going to be able to support myself through acting. You know, I, I would get jobs here, but the money, you know, wasn't consistent. So even if you got a gig, how long was that check going to last you, you know? And so I finally transferred to the University of Oregon, and it was like I was home. I, I hmm. felt so good, and I felt so comfortable, and I just excelled. I actually didn't do so well in high school. I struggled a lot. I'm not a good test taker. Math is very challenging for me. So, you know, while I always did well in English and maybe social studies, I, I struggled in all the sciences and all the math. I got not great grades. Uh, SMC, uh, I took sociology for the first time, actually, ah. and that was a big changer. I got straight A's in that. Uh, uh, I got turned on to Du Bois in Jonathan Malanza's class. Uh, and, you know, so things just, 
I was always interested in school, and but when I got to University of Oregon, whoo, it just like exploded. And then I just loved academia. I loved that I could just sit and learn and discuss and talk about the world, and I never left. And I, I, I'm 53 years old. I'm a full professor. I'm an associate dean. I still, when I get paid each month, I'm just like, seriously? I get paid to do this? Like, I'm reading books. I'm writing. I'm having discussions with my students. So uh, to me, it's just a dream. See, now you're telling our secrets. It's so weird. <laughs> it's funny. And I hate it because on, on, sometimes I'm on Twitter and I'm on link to a lot of, you know, academics on Twitter. And a lot of academic or people in the academic world, they just complain and complain and complain. And they talk about how awful it is and how bad the pay is and how bad the hours is. And I'm always scratching my head being like, are you serious? Like, I don't deny their experiences. I think their reality is true. For me, getting paid to teach and read and write has never felt, I mean, I run to work every day. I run to work, I run to my office. I'm so happy here. So I guess I just lucked out. And, and so why sociology? You know, I, I, I majored in sociology as an undergrad. And for me, oh. urban sociology was a welcomed invitation to explore the world, mm -hmm. right? And, and to explore the sorts of neighborhoods that produced me. Mm, right. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a and I could go into these neighborhoods um, and the fallback position wasn't, oh, how could you be from there? Uh, but a real curiosity mm -hmm. right, was encouraged. And, and so I just found that really thrilling. But what brought you to sociology? Yeah, I didn't even know what it was. You know, in high school, you're never, it's not discussed. You know, you learn history, econ, like no one, you know, I didn't even know what it was. And I remember my dad kind of said, you know, you might want to take a sociology class. And all I can say is there were, well, I always say to my students when they ask me what's the difference between sociology and psychology, I say, well, people who have problems with society major in sociology, people who have problems with themselves major in psychology. But <laughs> I, th th there's some truth to it in that I, you know, I grew up, all four of my grandparents were refugees from Europe, you know, hunted Jews. So I guess I had, from that, I, I was sensitive to inequality, persecution, injustice. And I, I was always curious about inequality, racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, you know, these things bothered me. Like, I didn't want to live in a world. And it's interesting because even though I grew up in a very privileged neighborhood, I just happened to be going into fourth grade when the LA Unified School District decided to initiate mandatory busing. In other words, there was a mm. recognition that the LA City Unified School District, which I believe was the largest in the country at the time, was grossly divided by race slash class totally intersecting. And so you had some schools that were just underfunded and underperforming, and you had these other great schools, and someone said, like, this isn't okay. We're all one school district, so we're going to bus people all over, and we're going to bus people from this part of town to here and this part of town over here. And, you know, 80% of the kids in my neighborhood just pulled out of the public school system. A, a, a startup private school popped up in, in the neighborhood, and they all went to that little village school. And my parents were like, no, you go to public school. And I was bused to Baldwin Hills. I was bused to Coliseum Street Elementary School for three years, and it was profound. I mean, it was fantastic. And it also, you couldn't not think about race and class 
primarily those, I would say. I wasn't too attuned to, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. other issues. Although I remember when all the Iranians showed up in 1979 fleeing the, the uh, uh, revolution in, in Iran. So I don't know. I just, when I got to sociology, sorry, this is a long-winded answer. When I got to sociology, here was a class that was specifically addressing race class, gender. I remember those were the big three. And then we talked about social problems, inequality. I remember reading Crisis in American Institutions was a, 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 you know, and I liked the focus on, I also was blown away by C. Wright Mills, you know, just these basic insights about how we are shaped by these forces that, you know, whether we recognize mm -hmm. them or not, they are shaping our lives and our identities. So it just kind of made sense to me. And I ran with it. And I Really, uh, I loved learning about social movements and social change. I just liked the way sociologists, they seem to care about the world. And I, I'll, I'll end here. I remember when I was in grad school at the University of Oregon, which was a big university. Who mm -hmm. was, we, we organized the graduate union, the graduate students into a union, got excellent health insurance. But who was, you know, 80% of the organizers of that union were so, sociology grad students. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, and I thought there's something to be said for that. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, t now as I'm older, I'm actually, re I'm not as much into sociology. I'm reading a lot more philosophy, a ton more mm. history. Um, those two, and even 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 evolutionary psychology, believe it or not, has helped me understand some things. But um, but I've always felt at home among sociologists. Yeah. Well, that that's really helpful. Thanks so much. I I've always been of the opinion that if we do this education thing right, it changes us. Mm. We can't be on a campus for four years, be vulnerable to what that experience can entail and leave the same way. So uh, so how did this education, right? How did this time in, in higher education as a student change you? Wow, man. You know, it's hard because it's also such a significant age. I mean, I started yeah. at 18, took me five years to get my bachelor's degree. So that, that age in and of itself is such a transformative age. You know, I moved away from home. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the specifically, if I think about the education, uh, I think it just makes, hopefully it made me less provincial. I think it opened me up. You know, it, 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 it does two, th what it did for me was two things. One is it kind of sometimes confirms things you always felt or thought about the world. And then you read it and you're like, yeah, what? Yeah. I've always thought that. And here's this, yeah. know, here, here's John Stuart Mill saying it, or, you know, here's somebody from, you know, a different country saying it from a different yeah, part of the yeah. world. And there's something very um, profound about that. It makes you feel more alive. It makes you feel more grounded. And it also makes you feel a little bit more connected to the stars or something. I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking about the stars a lot today. Um, so that was important. But then also, I feel like it just expanded my understanding of things, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what it means to be a, a man, what it means to be. I mean, I remember one. I'll just I'm thinking anecdotes. I hope that's OK. Sure, I'll, I'll give sure. you a perfect, perfect example. I was taking French, which was a huge mistake. Sorry, French speakers. But if you live in Southern California, taking French is about as useful as, you know, learning how to hunt elk or something. I mean, I should have taken Spanish. But anyway, I was taking French and I remember showing up to a um, to a French conversation class and there was a, another student there, Mary Ager. She was a student activist. I knew Mary. And I walked up and as I and I said, Mary, did you see that girl out there on the quad handing out those flyers about stop the war or there was something? 
And I knew Mary would be interested. We were both in the student activist realm. And she looked at me and she said, really, there was a girl out there handing out flowers? I'm like, yeah, did you get one? She's like, was she like like in fourth grade? Or, And I said, huh? And she said, well, she said, well, you said there was a girl standing in the, in the quad. So I'm just wondering, like, how old was she and why wasn't she in school? And I remember thinking, like, oh, come on, Mary, you know what I mean. And she was just like, well, I'm just trying to get a sense here. Did, did you mean a girl or a, was it a woman? Like, how old was she? And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know, 18, 19, 20. It, it, it was a huge <laughs> paradigm shift for me. I was like, you're right. Why would I say girl? I wouldn't have said boy. I would mm-hmm. have maybe said mm-hmm. guy or dude, but I wouldn't have said boy. And it, and, it, and there were so many moments like that related. And, then, and they helped me see the world differently. They helped put me in my place. They helped me stay humble. They, uh, you know, all those kind of things. So to me, education was about <clears throat> being less provincial in the world and also just becoming more aware of other people's experiences and perspectives. And so all of these experiences we have on these campuses, all that we're learning in classrooms that affirms or challenges, we filter through something, Mm. right? So some folks will filter that through their church experience or their synagogue experience or their mosque. What were you filtering this education through? Even though I was raised very culturally Jewish, you know, four refugees, all Jewish from Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. My father's first language was Yiddish. He was a Yiddish teacher. Uh, Even though I was very ethnically Jewish, much more than most American Jews, actually, we were very, we were, we were all secular, at least on the belief spectrum. My, all four of my grandparents <laughs> were non-believers. My, my two grandparents from, uh, were poor, uneducated, never, you know, didn't go past grade school, uh, didn't have running water. I mean, they were hardcore atheists, social of the socialist stripe. They, they felt that religion was part of the problem and they were hardcore socialists and they were anti-religious. My mom's parents were a bit more upper middle class, Bohemia, from Bohemia, German speaking, highly assimilated. And they just were more kind of interested in literature and music and film more so than religion. So they weren't anti-religious. They were just, you know, had other things on their plate, more agnostic, benignly so. So I'm a third generation non-believer, you know, my mom, my mom, dad. uh, So even though we did ethnic Jewish things like celebrate certain holidays, eat certain foods, and primarily hang out with other ethnic Jews as our social circle, um, there was no belief. I was never told there was a God. I was never told there was a heaven or hell. I was never told that prayer worked. I was never told that angels or demons were out. I mean, none of that was part of my world. So I did filter my experiences in, 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 in education from a very secular humanist framework. The secular being being no supernatural beliefs and the right. humanist part, as you know, as you talk about so much in your work, being those other more positive values. But I remember again, with the anecdotes at the University of Oregon, there used to be preachers uh, in the main quad there in front of the uh, Urban Memorial Student Union. And I mean, I was just dumbfounded, riveted. Like, I would be like, what? You know, I thought this happened in the 1600s. <laughs> and and I would, I would channel my inner actor and I would sometimes um, 
wrap a sweatshirt around my head and I would just go down there and pretend to be like a little devil and I would ch- I would like mock them. I'd had like 150 people laughing their asses off because I remember I used to, my catch line was, I, like, every time they'd say something when there was a pause, I'd say, how hot is hell? Tell us how hot hell is. And this used to kill the crowd. So <laughs> I used to, so there's an example of, you know, I, I didn't see religion as, I didn't just shrug my shoulders and walk on. I felt like I had to engage it and I had to debunk mm-hmm. it. For better or for ill, and I used to, I wrote the I wrote the atheist column in the student the student insurgent was the kind of radical paper on campus, and I I covered the atheist beat. Um, so I guess I was always filtering stuff through that framework of sort of secular humanism for sure. Oh, you were doing the damn thing, and, and, and you know, Phil, it sounds like um, as an undergraduate, you reached a point where you thought this world is for me. I'm an academic. And I'm wondering when you reached a point where secular humanism wasn't simply your family's stance, but you actively claimed it, right? What was that point? Where was the point at which you said, this is me, I'm a secular humanist? Wow, man, that's a good question. Um, it was early, pretty early on. Okay. You know, Tony, I, I it was it. I remember being in junior high and having these arguments. I, I remember being profoundly confused that seemingly thoughtful, nice, normal people could believe what to me seemed manifestly insane. And I, I know that there's no way to say that nicely, but I'm just speaking from the gut here. Sure. I remember my first serious girlfriend. I was in tenth grade. She was in eleventh grade. And we were in the same classes at school. We had the same social circles. She was smart. She was friend kind. We had a, you know, beautiful. We had a great relay. I was madly in love with her. And her father was an evangelical non-denominational preacher from Kansas or Oklahoma. I can't remember who had come out to Santa Monica to save the heathen. And I mean, you know, I was at her house all the time. Her parents were so nice. Her dad actually was not my my stereotypical version of the kind of preacher I thought mm-hmm. he would be. He was not a, he was a calm, bookish man with little glasses and he, there was nothing about him that was fire and brimstone. But they finally invited me to church one day and I don't know if I'd ever been to church and I was 15 and it was this big, huge warehouse that they had converted into a church. And, you know, I was just dumbfounded that I just couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. And I, I I don't, it, it makes me sound like an asshole or something. Like I, I understood the power of the community, but I was just like, what is happening? I remember, mm-hmm. for example, very clearly at one point in the service, they called up this young couple, very young, crying, holding a newborn baby. And I remember my girlfriend's dad saying, well, this is so-and-so and so-and-so. Their baby was born, you know, 16 days ago with a terrible heart defect. Let's all pray and beg God to cure this baby's heart. So I'm thinking, here's a newborn couple in their early 20s, their first child who's alive now, but is about to die because it's born with a defective heart. And this, and and my girlfriend's dad is asking everybody to, you know, pray for this baby. And mm-hmm. I was just, and I remember going like, well, I, my heart went out to this couple. I was yeah, devastated. Yeah. And I thought how wonderful that they're surrounded by so much love, so much care, but I was like, what is happening? These people think that through the magic of mental emails, there's a magical invisible being that will cure this baby. And 
And and even if they did, what is that saying? Like, if they didn't pray, God wouldn't save the baby. Like, it, the whole thing was just crazy to me. Right. And, I, and I remember thinking, like, this is really sad, but w- what is happening here? And so we went home that night, and I remember talking to my girlfriend. I'm like, you don't, you know, you don't really believe that stuff. And she's like, absolutely. And, you know, and she talked me through all her beliefs from the rapture to Armageddon to, you know, and I, I just remember feeling like it scared me. It freaked me out. And I, I think that, to be quite honest, there is a part of me that's kind of scared by certain forms of religion. You know, not, not your, not, I, I, I'm totally comfortable in a sort of liberal progressive, you know, I went to Episcopalian summer camp for years. I even worked there, <laughs> you know, if I had a hammer and, and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, down by the riverside, love it. But that kind of fundamentalist faith, whether it's Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, it scares me. And I think it's a force for ill in the world, even though I understand that people in desperate circumstances need that comfort. And I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't, it's not my place to take that away from them. I don't have anything better to offer. So I've always had a kind of skeptical view. I didn't call it secular humanism because I didn't know those words. But I do remember actually being in college, walking into the Lane Community College Library and seeing a magazine in the racks of American atheists. And I was like, uh. what? what? And I mean, you know, it was, you know, it was one of those libraries that would subscribe to lots of different magazines. And I yeah, just, yeah. Well, I'm like, there's a magazine called American Atheist. I flipped out. I immediately subscribed. I, I email, I, well, we didn't have email back then, but I think I wrote them a letter and they were like, Hey, do you want to come and speak on the atheist student? Atheist? <laughs> and I, I couldn't go to wherever the meeting was, but I was like, wow, this exists. And I, you know, that was my first foray. And then I'll end with this. I was also very involved in the Jewish Student Union. And to me, again, it was about community. It was an ethnic Mm -hmm. association. And I was always planning activities and events and bringing speakers. But I was living with other uh, students in Oregon who weren't Jewish, who didn't know much about Jews. They were from different parts of the country. And I remember one day I was off to something and Jack from, from Minnesota said to me, man, I've never known anybody so religious as you. And I was, this was, you know, you couldn't have said anything worse. I'm like, what? He's like, you're always, he's like, you're always doing this Jewish stuff. Like to him, it was as if I was this active Catholic or this active Mormon, you know? And I was like, Jack, I'm an atheist. He's like, well, why are you always doing this Jewish stuff? And I was trying to explain, well, Jews are kind of different and we're a people with a religion and, you know, the whole spiel. But that's when I was like, this, it's hard to explain. And I, and so when I got out of college, and I got into grad school, I would say I more and more drifted away from finding community among fellow Jews and finding more among humanists. And I started learning about humanist organizations and I started learning about secular humanism and it just continu- progressed from there. So let's let's shift gears a little bit, Phil. And so you you get this, you get the first job, right? You're an academic and you're getting a paycheck for it. Yeah. Were you vocal about your disbelief as a faculty member? Did people know? Yes, I can't help it. I have no filter. I have no filter at faculty meetings. I have no filter. I mean, it is ugly. Um, And it wins me some friends and it earns me some enemies. But um, yes, I was very upfront. I started teaching intro to social, classical social theory, sociology of deviance, sociology of religion. I was teaching sociology of religion. So I was very explicit. And I would say to them, look, I'm a non-believer. And in fact, much of my fascination is trying to understand 
how people can be religious. That motivates much of my work. Why are people religious? How can people be religious? What is the good and bad religion does in society? And, and the only thing I would say to them was like, so you're going to get an unfiltered secular take. However, I will be inviting different religious speakers every Friday to this class. So you will, so one third of the class will be completely, you know, the microphone will be in the hand of a, of a religious person, uh, an imam, a rabbi, a priest, a pastor, a minister, you name it. And that was the way I kind of countered it. But yes, no, I've always been pretty uh, vocal. Now, at a place like Pitzer College, which is a very secular mm-hmm. school in a very secular part of the country, this is no big deal. In fact, I rarely get believers. And the most of the time, the believers I do get tends to be first-gen Latinx students, understandably, who, you know, who is such a huge part of their culture. But I remember one time when I had first was here, I was given a lecture on kind of like Mormonism and how it started. And I said, you know, here's a great example of a religion that started recently. We have all the, we have all the information you could ever dream of, of, of its founders and what happened and how it grew and how it developed. And I gave a lecture on how, you know, the frauds and scams and cons of Joseph Smith before he made up this, you know, I talked about the, the how he faked writing the Book of Mormon and how his friend Martin Harris helped him and how Harris's wife, you know, stole the pages and made them, ask them to translate it again, like all this stuff. I talked about his desire to sleep with young women and how the problems he had with his wife. Like I just kind of went through everything explaining the origins of Mormon. Well, that afternoon, one of the better students in class knocked on my door, young woman. She came in and she said, look, I've been enjoying your class. It's amazing, but I'm Mormon. I've never heard the thing. You know, within five minutes, she was bawling, right? Just crying. Like this was the most offensive thing she'd ever heard. This was an attack on her God, on her prophet, on her family, on her grandparents who suffered. Like, you know, I'm sitting there going like, I just laid out the facts. Like, I, I mean, do you want to see my sources? I presented them in lecture, but you can see them yourself. You know, I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking in my mind. And I thought, oh, I'm really sorry. I tried to be kind in person, but she ended up dropping the class and leaving Pitzer because it just was not the place for her. So my my overt secularity and humanism um, is no problem at a place like Pitzer College. But I do, I remember I was a finalist for a job at Wake Forest. In fact, <laughs> I remember I was told I got the job and then I was called and told I didn't get the job. But I I know that if I had gotten hired in other parts of the country, I probably would have had a much rougher road because, yeah. So I'm very explicit. And then I started teaching classes. You know, what happened with sociology religion was one time I remember about, you know, five or six years into it, a student said to me, they said, you know, I, I took this class because I wanted to learn about religion. And you do a lot of debunking of religion, which is fine, but that's not really the class I thought I was taking. And I said, you're right. And I retooled it and I changed my sociology of religion to be more about let's look at religion in society, how religion intersects with race, class, gender, politics, media without the debunking. And then I just started teaching a new class called secularism and skepticism or something like that. And then it was just truth and advertising. So in the one class, I could just, hey, we're going to debunk and, 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 and that'll be that. And then in this other class, I'm going to do less of that. And that helped. But that was really the birth of secular studies for me. Because when I started teaching that class on secularism and skepticism and irreligion, I think I called it, it was hugely popular. And I had many students say to me, this is what I wanted. I'm majoring in religious studies, but this is actually what I wanted. I didn't want to read about church history. I didn't want to read about biblical interpretations. I didn't want to read about, you know, I wanted this. So, you know, in a sense, I was glad that student said what they said to me because it helped me make 
things more clear in my teaching. And I want to get to uh, secular studies, but you you sparked a few thoughts for me. Uh, and, and so I'd like to just kind of toy with those a bit, chat, uh, chat concerning those for a minute. Please. So it seems to me within humanist community, humanist circles, the typical strategy is to hit theists often and hard. However they respond to that hit is on them. But I wonder, it, it strikes me that within the context of our profession, part of our responsibility is to instill in students an appreciation for critical thinking and effective communication strategies. We are rocking students' worlds. And, and so I'm curious, particularly in light of the example you gave, what is your strategy for this sort of interrogation, right? Students come with 18 years of unchallenged thinking on topics. And, and so what is your strategy for tackling those areas, getting students to think critically concerning what they have always assumed? And let me add to that. And, and so in terms of that strategy, what elements of that strategy do you think ought to be employed within the larger humanist community? Wow. Okay, those are those are big questions and important questions, and you know, and as you said, moral and ethical uh, imperatives in a sense. And they're they're two ones. So that, to me, I'm hearing two things. One is kind of yeah. how do I get my students to think critically? How do I model? You know, what are my some strategies? And then the next one is shifting it to the kind of that, the humanist world specifically, right? Did I get and, it? And with the students, how do you help them yeah. deal with the trauma that is a natural part yeah. of that interrogation, that critical engagement? So I would say sometimes I do it better and sometimes I do it worse. Um, Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. To me, the real, that, that journey really takes place when I teach intro to sociology. And that's why I still love teaching it after all these years. And I... And I start with some key things like, you know, we, I talk about the social construction of reality and we break that down. And I try to get them to say, like, look, how many aspects of our world feel normal, feel natural, feel permanent, feel and yet only exist because people say they exist and act accordingly. And, you know, and that, and that takes two weeks to break that down. And we talk about everything from you know beauty standards to uh, what is a family, what is race? What are countries? You know, we just kind of, and that, there's a, there's a, I can see for some students, there's a real shift there. It's suddenly like, wait a minute. Then when we get to Mills and we bring it to ourselves and we say, well, what about us is inborn and innate? And what about us is only what it is or the way it is because of how we were raised, where we were raised, and what kind of things we experienced. And we even make lists, you know, like, I, I know sometimes I say, okay, make a list of three things about yourself that are uniquely you. These can be I am statements, I like statements, I believe statements, you know, and I say, don't worry, no one's going to see this. So you can write whatever you want. You know, I love apples. Uh, I love Led Zeppelin, whatever it is, or I'm, 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 I'm a Republican. And we don't get that too much at Pittsburgh, but you know, that was going <laughs> to, I have them write these statements. And then I say, okay, look at your statements, and then we start ask questions. And I say, how many of the three would be the same had you simply grown up in uh, uh, Yemen? Let's just stop mm -hmm. right there. You know? mm -hmm. Well, we 
scratch, we could probably scratch this off. Maybe not, you know. And then we just kind of keep doing that. How many of huh. these would be the same if you were a different gender? How many of these would be the same if you know? And I try to get them, to, you know, and it it just help. And, and some students like it did for me. It suddenly freaks them out. Like, why am I in college? Am I only in college because my parents expected this of me? Am I only, uh, you know, pro-abortion because of who raised me? Am I only? You know, and it gets very, you know, I, I in deviance. I always talk about, you know. Even stuff about race gets gets very, you know, I talk to them about what are your beliefs about race? And I was like, do you think your beliefs would be the same if you were white in Alabama or, you know, always go to the South in your mind, like in, in, in during the during uh, the t- days of slavery? You're telling me, you know, 1851, you'd be having these same views. And, you know, they have, you know, and that's very scary to go, wait, what the fuck? That's, I think, where I provide most of my critical thinking and the classical sociological theory, reading Marx, reading Du Bois, reading Gilman, reading Durkheim. So that's where I feel like, you know, even Durkheim reading about social facts, like it just, I see that happening most in those two classes. And and it's gentle and I, well, not always gentle, but what is nice about it is it's broad enough so I don't, they don't feel like they're specifically being attacked. So I'm not specifically saying, you know, your views are socially constructed. I'm trying to, you know, or your identity is problematic or you benefit from certain privileges and so on and so forth. It's, it's very broad and then they can start to make those connections themselves. And some do it to the extreme, some not at all, but that's, I really find that an enjoyable journey for myself as well. When it gets to the humanist world, I'm really, I struggle with this, Tony. It's like, I just am really struggling. And I and I don't even know, forgive me if I'm ranting, but it's like, I'm looking at the world right now and I'm looking at, you know, we have an attorney general in Texas who wants to mm-hmm. imprison consent, consenting adults who have non-procreative sex. He wants to criminally charge them. Yeah. We have a Supreme Court justice who wants to revisit these rulings that, you know, that, that abolished sodomy laws in our nation. We have, you know, a good chunk of, of the United States, um, you know, thinking Trump, you know, actually won the election. You know, I could go on on women's bodily autonomy, gay rights, the, the environment. Like, I'm just looking at this and I know it's not true, but I keep blaming religion. And I know that's stupid. I know that's sloppy thinking because most religion is a force for good. Most religious people are doing good things and have good hearts and good, but, and I know that the religious people that I'm t- thinking about are a specific Christian nationalist, conservative strain. I know that. And yet I'm having a hard time not seeing, you know, a certain version of, 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 of a Jesus-centered, God-centered faith spearheading. You know, when I when I saw the, when I read about the t- text messages between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows mm-hmm. on January 6th, this is all for the glory. This is all for the King of Kings. I was like, it, it, it fucking freaks me out. I know full well that there are, you know, I know that many of those progressive Democratic Congress people who were cowering in the Capitol on that day are God believers and Jesus believers. So I know in my mind these things exist in the same way. But I think we all, 
I, I shouldn't say all. I think many people, when they look at a, a freaky world or a scary world, they need something to blame. And for some people, it's capitalism. For some people, it's it's racism. For some people, it's whatever, you know, like <laughs> it's nationalism. Like we have, you know, to make sense of the world, we, we, we go into sloppy, simplistic thinking. And I know, you know, if I really step back as a sociologist, I actually do believe that this this Christian nationalism is actually rooted in racism, is actually rooted <laughs> in nationalism, is actually rooted in all these deeper sociological things. But for some reason, yeah. those are harder for me yeah, to grasp. Right. They're harder for me to fight. And it's like a, if I could just blame religion, it kind of makes it – I can focus. I can channel. I can – so I would say – but but I know that's not the right way to do it. And I know that we need allies, whatever their beliefs are. We need to embrace people um, of faith who share our politics. I mean, I'm going to end. I'm going to try to. I remember this is when my secular humanist activism was really challenged. It was when it was the Georgia Senate election. And I think it was between. You know, a Trumper and Raphael Warnock. Yeah. And, you know, the balance of the Senate was going to hang here. And this guy's a pre, a pastor, a Bible quoting pastor. And I'm sending money to him like, please win. So that said to me, I was like, well, wait a minute. Clearly, my problem is not with religion, because why would I support this guy who's a who's a strong Christian? Well, I support him because we have the same politics and he's going to save the world in a way that I want the world to be saved. So I know that things are more complex and, and so I struggle in, in humanist circles to get secular humanists to, to – yes, there's a lot about religion to critique. I'm at the forefront of that, as you've heard. But we have to step back and we have to realize that we can't blame religion for all of society's problems. If religion were to disappear tomorrow – society's problems are not going to vanish. You know, Sikibu Hutchinson really taught me that. You know, she's yeah. like, you think if everybody's secular, suddenly racism's going to go away? Suddenly sexism's going to go away? Suddenly all, you know, of course not. And so I do believe that certain forms of religion contribute to those problems, make those things worse, whether they make nationalism yeah. worse, tribalism worse, they make xenophobia worse, all those things. It's it's much more complex. And so if I could, I would, I would want my secular humanist brothers and sisters to not do what I often do as well, which is just sort of think that religion is the problem. And it's more like, no, certain types of religion are problematic in certain ways. And that's my battle, but it's not the only battle. Yeah, I like that. That That's that's nuanced. I like it. And, and I would agree with you that that this this confrontation with theists, and, and I would make a distinction between religion and theism. It seems to me that for secular humanists, the real target is theism. And it, it seems to me it's often the case that this attack on theism really involves this sort of strategy. The best defense is a good offense, right? That is to say, it frees secular humanists from having to look at their own shit. Mm. Right. If we blame religion for everything, we don't have to look at the ways in which we're sexist or transphobic or racist because it's really these religious people who are about it. Right. So I like that nuance. And here's the thing. I think you do a fabulous job of describing the world. The world that we have produced is fucked. Right. And this is not the consequence of divine anger or divine correction. We human beings have fucked up the social world and the earth. And here's the thing, Phil, every year we send students into this world. 
So here's my question. What are the values you hope to instill in students as they move from the safety of your campus into the world? What kind of values do you want them to take with them? Wow, okay, Tony, I got a laundry list here. But I just wanted to affirm what you just said. It's so true about theism and the religion and all that stuff. And I have thoughts on that, but let me get to this. So here's my laundry list, ready? Number one, a certain understanding of empiricism. Like there is some mm. kind of perceptible reality that relate, responds to our senses. It allows us to build bridges that don't collapse. It allows you and I to have this conversation right now, yes. even though you're thousands of miles away. And, yeah, and yeah. we live in a world now where truth is on, under assault. And, and I don't mean subjective aesthetic truths. I mean, you know, reality, like how many people voted for a certain candidate and you can count right, the fucking right. So I want my students to have an understanding and appreciation for certain empirical claims. And now not all claims are empirical. So I'm not saying everything can be reduced to some empiricism, but the thing, empirical claims that are made should be able to be, be tested. And there's ways to test those claims. And there's ways, so that's yeah, for me yeah, really yeah. important right now. Whether we're talking climate change, whether we're talking presidential elections, whether we're talking what you know what contributes to gun violence, we need to be empirical on those matters, not all of them. Yes. Okay. Next, you know, I once read a quote. Um, I think it was from Robert Frost, who said something like, "Education is the ability to listen to anything without losing your self confidence or your temper or, or composure or something like that." And I and I'm I struggle with that, and I'm you know. And I see it happening more and more. So I actually team teach a class. I'm the sort of progressive professor from Pitzer, the secular progressive prof Pitzer. There's a conservative religious professor at Claremont McKenna College, which is across the street. Mm -hmm. We team teach a class. And it is so wonderful because I give my take, he gives his take. We're respectful. So we're modeling mm -hmm. a certain way to dialogue. We're modeling a way. And I... I'm dropping F-bombs like crazy. I mean, it's sad. I'm like kind of the jerk in the class. But, um, but you know, this is, uh, this is something that I see the students are hungering for. How can we disagree? How can we disagree about the state of the world, you know, vehemently but respectfully? So, and how can we hear things? You know, it saddens me. I had a student recently, a couple years ago, who saw that class being offered and emailed me and said, you know, I'm a strong socialist progressive and I don't think um, I want to know about this conservative professor because I think my my mental health and my psychological well-being will be too traumatized if I take this class. And it was like, mm. are you kidding me? If you can't like hear somebody else's take mm. on something, what, yeah. why are you like, what is happening here? So that worried me. And I, I, I wrote, you know, this was an advisee of mine. And I wrote, look, I think it's a great class. You know, you you make your own call. I don't want to. I don't want to endanger your mental health or your psychological well-being. But to me, I you know I would. You know, this is my. These are my thoughts, and they ended up not taking the class. Next, I really the third one is empathy. To me, empathy. When you talk about values, like suffering is awful. I want to avoid and alleviate suffering. I want people's suffering to be less. This is what motivates me in the world. I don't call things evil anymore. I don't say Republicans are evil. I say those policies are going to increase suffering. I don't mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm, you know, I don't mm -hmm. say that evil, that person's an asshole. I say, do you want more suffering? Or like, it's just going to cause yeah, more suffering. Yeah. I don't say, you know, oh, we got to fight climate change. For I say, 
if we don't do this, more people are going to suffer. You're going to, you know, if we have more guns, more people are going to suffer. And I find that's very disarming because nobody wants to like defend suffering. But to me, it's based in empathy. And so whether I'm talking about, you know, um, um, whether, you know, should we teach our school children the reality of Emmett Till or not? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, should we should we let people have bodily autonomy? Should we stop selling AR-15s to 18-year-olds on their birthday? Should we, whatever the issue is, right, it's right. I'm trying to go to that point of empathy and compassion. I know, I know Paul Blumo yeah. against empathy, whatever, empathy, compassion to me, they're, they're, uh, I know they're distinct, but I see them. So that's, so I, you know, an, an ability to be empirical about factual claims, an ability to hear oppositional ideas and, and, and worldviews and engage them uh, respectfully. And finally, you know, motivate your politics in an empathy and a compassion or or your career choice. It doesn't even have to be your politics, but go out in the world and try to alleviate suffering however you can. I guess those would be my three. I mean, that that's fantastic. It, it seems to me there's something about the classroom that we often miss because we are so committed to the idea that the classroom is a safe space. And what we mean by that is you will only say things that I'm comfortable with. The classroom is really a space of challenge, of transformation, of, of new ways of approaching difference, not as a problem to solve, but as an opportunity. And, and it seems to me that this is one of the lessons that the larger humanist community needs to learn, that mm. these conversations, these confrontations ought to make us better. Yep. I hope so. I, I agree with you. It's how we grow. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's the thing for me, Phil. So you were, you're in this environment that is secular, and you're encountering students who are open to this sort of challenge. Yeah. But yet, one day, you said out loud what most of us in the academy, most of us humanists in the academy only thought, damn it, we need secular studies. Right. Yeah. So how did you get to that point? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. There were there were a couple of things happening simultaneously that all just kind of gelled. So the first one I already mentioned was I started teaching a class called Secularism and Skepticism and Religion, I think I called it. And the student response was huge. So I saw students just their eyes were lighting up, their minds were lighting up, and they were so moved and blown away by learning about religion from this perspective and learning about secularism as an option, as an alternative worldview. I've assigned your readings always, you know, your, your writings has, have always been part of those classes, um, positive affirmations of humanism, et cetera, et cetera. So that was first, and that class just became becoming so popular. At the same time, I was always going to religious studies conferences. So in my world, there's like sociology religion. So we have the ASR. There's also the Triple um, SR Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. I don't go to the A. What is it? The AAR as much. Yeah, the American, American Academy of Religion. Yeah, that, I, I've gone a couple of times. That's just a monster. But um, um, but anyway, I would go to these conferences because if you're interested in religion and secular. And, and what I find is I'd find a few other colleagues who were, you know, noticing like, hey, I'm studying a there's a there's some humanist meetups in Portland. Um, I'm starting to interview those people, and 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 we were starting to realize that atheism was starting to, you know, this was just mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. 
just before Harris, Hitchens, and Dawkins, and mm-hmm. Ali, and all you know, and Dennett. It was yeah. just before that big explosion. But we were noticing that you know more and more people were. Oh, I remember the big headline in 2001. I'll never forget this on USA Today was 14% of Americans are now religiously unaffiliated. This was yeah, huge. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were like, wait a minute. There's no place. There's no. Why are we? We're publishing in religious journals. We're meeting at religious conferences, and we're kind of we're kind of cowering in the corner here. We are studying. What are we studying? We didn't have the language. We didn't have the the concepts. We didn't have the taxonomies. We didn't have the the typologies. Like, what are we talking about? Like, what does it mean to be non-religious? Who are non-religious people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How are we typologizing them? What do we know about their voting behavior? Their demographics? Their child raising? All these things. So there was a kind of recognition that as social scientists, whether we're psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists, you name it, um, there's this huge chunk of humanity that we're not really talking about. If anything, it's a kind of residual category. You know, there might be some survey about, you know, how often do you have sex? And it's like, you know, by religious affiliation. And then there might be this last category, like non-religious. Who are those people? Are they differentiated in any way? Is there, are they all just one lump clump, you know? And so, so while I'm teaching this class, I start to realize there's other colleagues out there who mm-hmm. are wanting to study non-religious people, secular people, secular culture. How do they live their lives? And and what was interesting was, so there was, my class tend to be a more like critique of religion, but this was more an affirmative study of secular life. It wasn't about, it's like, it actually wasn't about debunking religious claims mm-hmm. or promoting mm-hmm. skepticism. It was just about like, wow, there are hundreds of millions of people in the United States living their lives without religion. Who are, we don't know anything about that. <laughs> and then at the same time, I had a colleague who was grew up in the former Soviet Union. He was from Kazakhstan, who was interested in that experiment and that failed experiment of Soviet imposed atheism. So he was interested in that. Then I had a history colleague who was very interested in Leibniz and and he, he would teach his class called the age of anxiety and about mm. enlightenment and all this. Mm-hmm. So I had all these colleagues and I saw in the handbook at Pitzer College that said you can propose we call them field groups at Pitzer. We don't call them departments. It's part of our sixties okay. uh founding and there's reasons for it but anyway you can propose a new field group if you get four colleagues to join and then you have to write a proposal and it goes to this committee for approval and it goes to that so i contact i realized that many of my colleagues were teaching classes related to some aspect of secularity whether it was history through sociology through political studies adrian pantoja was studying uh, growing secular people in the latinx community he's a political scientist so i had a little retreat we i got sandwiches for everybody we, we met on a Saturday, we had a bunch of whiteboards and chalkboards and blackboards, and we were like, well, what are the classes we already teach? What are some classes mm-hmm. we could teach? Is this, could we have a secular studies program? And actually, Barry Cosman came to be our little advisor. He flew out from the East Coast to sort of sit in on and help us, and we, we brainstormed, and we were like, wow, we're already teaching this, and we're already teaching that. Yeah. We spent all day, I wrote up a proposal, it went to APC, uh, it was first rejected. I revised it. It was approved. It went to the FEC. It was approved. And we got our little secular studies program. And it's since grown. And in while that all was happening, Barry Cosman had just founded the uh, Institute for the Study of Secularism in Society and Culture back at Trinity, which is now, unfortunately, I think, debunked. Uh, def, de, uh, you know, defunct. Then there, um, then things started happening. The the non-religion and secularity research network in England uh, mm-hmm. 
came on the scene and started having conferences. Now there's a sec, you know, secularism and non-religion journal went online. Now there's a secular studies journal. So things have just snowballed from there. But yeah. for me, it was two motivations. One, I realized my fascination with religion was decidedly secular in orientation, and I wanted mm-hmm. a base for that to be, you know, truth in advertising. And number yeah. two, because I find religious studies is I love religious studies. It's fascinating. But I used to teach at Claremont Graduate University mm-hmm. uh, a sociology religion seminar, and all those students were religious studies majors. And they were always so respectful of all aspects of religion. Like, I could never get them to say, like, is there anything you don't, you know, they were just like, yeah, I remember, yeah. I had, like, you know, I had like a, a Catholic priest who was also getting a degree. And I was trying to get him. I said, well, why do you think people are Muslim if, you know, like, how do you explain that? Is you know, Islam is a wonderful tradition. It's so rich. I'm like, I know that. Can you explain to me how do you explain why people don't accept the truth of this religion but accept the truth of that religion? Well, you know, Islam is so wonderful, and you know, he, I couldn't get this person to say a simple statement of like, well, maybe they are Muslim for these reasons, you know, sociological mm-hmm. reasons or psychological reasons. It was just, I'm just going to say nice things, and and that's all good and fine, but it was driving me nuts. So the one motivation was I wanted a space where I could talk about religion in an unabashedly skeptical, secular, you know, right. old part way. On the other hand, I realized, and this, you know, more where secularities went really was that we just don't know enough about secularism and humanism throughout history, in mm-hmm. social movement, mm-hmm. in politics, in the media, in our world. And so secular studies yeah. said, let's take that as the focus of our of our studies, and that's motivated me and excited me much more than the you know the debunking. I mean, you can you know the debunking's fun, but it's not a it's not an academic enterprise that's going to sustain over time. Uh, it, you know, it can get kind of tiresome after a while. But but learning more about how secularity intersects with race, class, gender, sexuality, yeah. all of that, yeah. it's wide open. I mean, the psychology of atheism is wide open. The neurology of secularity is wide open. These fields are just starting, and it's really exciting to see. I'll end right here, for example. Recovery from addiction. Addiction is such mm-hmm. a huge problem in our world that it's growing, right? It affects my own family members. How do secular, almost every recovery program is God-centered. Hey, if it works, it works. Here's an example of like, man, I don't care if it works, great. But what do you do if you you honestly can't believe that there's a magical invisible being or a higher power? How do you, you know, there's so little being done there on addiction and secularity. And that's a, you know, so that's just like right now that's on the top of my list of of to-dos. Yeah, there was a tremendous amount of positive buzz concerning secular studies, right, as you were developing it. Uh, national buzz, international buzz, New York Times, etc. But I'm wondering if there was any pushback. Yes. So, so there was, and there is. So I would say, and some of it justified, some of it unjustified. Um, so I think there were a couple things. One, you know, Pittsburgh's a small little college. I think we have like 75, 80 tenure track faculty. I mean, we're you know thousands student body. It's a small little mm-hmm. school. It's not like, it's not UC San Diego or something like that. So internally, I would say that I had one colleague who was opposed to secular studies because he thought it was too ideologically driven. You know, he thought we should not mm. be having majors at a liberal arts college that have such an agenda, such a perspective. And I, and I think there's some truth to that. I think he's absolutely right. Um, 
that said, so, so I said, you know, my response was, well, look at the courses we're offering. Look at the requirements for the major. We require that students have to take two or three religious studies classes as mm -hmm. part of their secular studies program. Look at the classes we're offering. These are not, they're not all, you know, atheism, yay, yay, yay. You know, they're the stuff on Soviet atheism is critical. The stuff that Andre does in history is very critical. You know, in fact, he wants we're teaching. He wants to teach a class called Secularism and Its Discontents. He's one of these guys who thinks you know secularism was a kind of part of the this Enlightenment myth that everything is going to get better, but it was actually contributing to the problem. So, I tried to say, look, there are ways to create this discipline that are more biased and nuanced. I also said, not that this is a I pulled a little whataboutism, but I mean we have a lot of majors at Pitzer that are clearly, you know, our environmental analysis program has an agenda. Like there's nobody yeah, in any yeah, way yeah. that global warming is a myth. I mean, even sociology is so like we all agree, you know, there's a there's a clear agenda in our sociology field group, you know. Our, you know, our classes are, you know, if you take a class in sociology on the criminal justice system, what you're going to hear is how fucked the criminal justice system is. If you take a class in sociology on the yeah, sociology yeah, of education, yeah. what you're going to learn is how fucked their educational system is. I mean, come on, like, it's part of the, not, that's not to say it's a good thing, but I, so there was that issue. Also, he has his own issues too. He's always grinding axes and this was it. But the bigger thing I noticed was that people just didn't quite understand it. They did, they, mm -hmm. what is secular mm -hmm. even mean? Why? Why is there a need? Why isn't this just part of religious studies? Like, I think the the bigger challenge we had was not that people were opposed to it, but that people just didn't understand it. So there was almost a kind of <laughs> apathetic, uh, ignorant. Not I don't mean ignorant in the pejorative sense, but just a lack of knowledge about yeah. what is this? Why are you doing this? And what's the point? And I think that's been the bigger challenge. And I think that's a very important challenge. And and they're also um, simultaneously, you know. We're now living in an era where a lot of our students, they want a job. They don't want to live at home after college. Like they, they sure, want to, you know, sure. so a lot of our students are like, why would I major in secular studies? What, what would I do with this? Where, you know, there's in, and those are all legitimate questions and concerns. So to the, to my colleagues and students who are just like, what is this? Well, that's our job to make it understood. What is the point of secular studies? What does it offer? How does it contribute to a broader understanding of the human experience? And that's a, that's an important task and challenge to take on. And to the students that, you know, are worried about what can I do with this, to be quite honest, all the students that have majored in secular studies have always double majored. So they've either double majored in secular <laughs> studies <laughs> and philosophy or secular studies and religious studies or, you know, and I'm like, yeah, Good idea. Good idea. Um, so I would also so so there have been no other secular studies programs uh, since ours. You know, which right. I had a lot of people emailing me like, "Oh, I want to do this too at this school. I want to do." And I was like, "Great! How can I support you? Here's here's all all my material. Here's our proposal. What can I do?" But we have so what we've seen is my the own the department here or the field group has grown so we now mm -hmm. we start with four we're now i think we have like eight of my colleagues are offering classes that okay studies sikivu hutchinson is now yes, regularly yes. african-american humanism yearly which is just incredible she was our uh and she was our um, um our graduation speaker for our class right uh, right i saw that so I'm just, and I'm, I would love to hire her full time. I'm working that as hard as I can. And, you know, it's hard at Pitzer College to make that happen, but I'm, I'm trying my hardest. Um, and so that's the good news. And these, you know, we have these new journals out. We have NSRN that I talked about. So there's a lot happening on the, on the secular studies front. Now, when you look at any of those conferences I mentioned, they have tons of sessions on atheism, secularism, humanism, you bet, publishing on it. But in terms of other departments out there, it's been it's been crickets and you know and I think there are good reasons for that bad reasons for that but that's just where things stand right now
So answer this question for me, Phil. If, kind of fill in the, the, the blank. Higher education is better with secular studies because... You cannot understand much of the world if you don't understand secularity and secularism. You can't understand what's going on in India right now, Turkey, Israel, the United States. If you don't understand that non-religious people, non-religious movements are have been part of humanity since recorded history and are a growing presence in the world today uh, without a clear understanding of what that means. So many societies today, we for the first time in history, we have a majority of people in certain societies who are non-religious. In Estonia, in Scotland, in the Netherlands, more people are saying they're non-religious than are. We have more non-theists in Norway than theists. I mean, this is a sea change. And secularism is such a huge part of so many, even, I mean, off the top of my head, we have an exchange program in Nepal. They're struggling over how to rewrite their constitution. Is Nepal going to be defined as a Hindu nation or is it going to be described as a secular nation? Look what's going on in France right now with laïcité and, and mm -hmm. Quebec. I mean, so what I would say is we need secular studies in higher education because non-religious people, non-religious movements are a significant element in national politics, in, in our media. I mean, I'll give you an example. I just watched this amazing show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. I don't know if you've seen it. No, no, I haven't. It's a reality show that follows people on various uh, uh, levels of the autistic spectrum looking for dating, trying to date and find relationships. Okay. Okay. You you meet their families. You meet their dates. You, you watch their experience trying to find love. Three seasons. I stepped back from this show and I said – no, and I mean no aspect of religion was mentioned. Mm. God, faith, prayer. Actually, they did visit a Buddhist temple in Australia one day, so I take that back. I shouldn't say no. 98% <laughs> of the show didn't make any... So here are people living their lives, navigating a disability, navigating relationships, navigating family life. No mention of faith or religion. How is this possible? What does it mean? without a frame or a lens to analyze that and acknowledge it and notice it, that this is a secular, well, first of all, is it reality or did they just cut it out because they didn't want it in the show and they didn't want to offend anybody and they just said, well, let's not go there. Or are these people actually living religionless lives, facing loss, struggles, love? You know, So to me, we need secular studies in higher education to better understand a growing part of planet Earth and a, the people on planet Earth. How do you can't understand what's going on in China, uh, Japan right now? Uh, even uh, I, 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 I'm helping refugees from the Middle East. This is a poet who wrote something that he's he was raised Muslim but is not a believer. Wrote something to that effect. Had to flee for his life. He married a Coptic Christian. This is an unacceptable marriage in that part of the world. It's illegal. They had to flee. They're now here in L.A. And you can't understand their plight if you don't understand what it means to be secular. One last question. I, and I want to ask this question in light of what we both know is taking place in higher education, right? Think in terms of Florida. Think in terms of Georgia. What do you see as the future of higher education, particularly the liberal arts? And what is the future of, of secular studies? Mm. I'm, you're getting me on a bad day, Tony. I'm, I'm pessimistic about the future of higher education and liberal arts. Now I'm not going to blame religion. I'm going to blame our capitalist world system here. <laughs> I see my students 
more and more, even at a liberal arts college that is explicitly designed to create a well-rounded human being that has right. knowledge of multiple disciplines. My students are they're all double majoring in econ. We we have sociology and we have a um, we started an, or, an organizational studies program about ten years ago. Org studies. Some colleagues, same thing with you know similar studies. They had common interests. Org studies. I have students now coming constantly saying, first years. Well, I'm going to major in org studies. Why? Well, I think it'll help me get a job. Do you, do you know what org studies is? Have you ever taken an org studies class? So sociology is plummeting. Org studies is going up because they just simply think. Org studies will get me a job. So, and I can't blame them. There are economic realities out there. I can't, right. you know, eighteen year old is worried about, you know, especially right. the first gen students. They, they, you know, it's like, come on. So, I'm worried about philosophy, literature, history. Mm-hmm. History has been plummeting at our school. So, I, I know this is just anecdotal. It's a sample of one, but my fear and worry is that. Students more and more are going to be concerned about their economic viability. Uh, didn't mm-hmm. I, I? I feel like I read something about the UK, and I'm I'm having a hard time believing it. But like there was some pronouncement saying that if classes in higher ed can't prove their economic, like how they contribute to the economic viability of students, it's going to be cut or something. Like I think it was too scary for me to even read, so I just I swiped left or right or whatever you do on Tinder. But anyway. Um, so I'm pessimistic about the future of higher education and, and and liberal arts. I feel like it's more and more going to be a privilege of the wealthy elite when you look at how much education is costing. In terms of the future of secular studies, I think right now I'm on a wait and see basis. Like I said, there was a big flurry 10 years ago. I don't know what I see in the future of the 10 years. I hope that there's more growing, but but I, I can't let my, my biases taint my sense of the data right now, which is it doesn't seem like other departments are going to um, grow up, you know, pop up. But I hope it, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.